0: It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Why let a good whiteboard go to waste? We've got about 50 of these in the church. All stories have a shape. All stories have a shape, and sometimes we miss that because when we're reading a story or we're consuming something like a movie, we we don't necessarily see what it's doing, but all stories have a shape, and they can all be drawn, stories. Uh, This is for the math nerds out there. There is a B-E axis. Every story has a beginning and every story has an end. Beginning and end, B-E axis, but then there's another one. We call this the G-B axis. Every story has good news and every story has bad news. And I assure you, every story that we tell, whether it's in a book or in a movie or something we tell around the dinner table, they can all be drawn on this board. For example, There's a young woman, she's maybe 17 or 18 years old, and her life is just kind of garbage. It's kind of a mess. Things aren't what she would hope for them to be, and why, why is her life so terrible? Well, her mother has died, and that's sad enough. But to make matters worse, her father marries a horrible wretch of a woman. And not only does he marry her, but she's got two terrible daughters of her own, and they come into her life. Do you know the story? Well, she, you know, her life's okay, I mean, it's not great, it's not bad, but she's moving along, it's neither good nor bad, and then one day, an invitation comes from the castle. There is a ball to be held, and all of the young women are invited to this celebration. But does our soot-covered heroine get an invitation? No, she doesn't get to go to the ball. Enter fairy godmother, who arrives not just to bring her worth, but to provide her everything she needs for the party. A dress, transportation, and a pair of glass slippers. And she is the belle of the ball. I mean, everyone's watching her. She dances with the prince, and everything is great. Her life was nothing, and all of a sudden, she is moving up the good news. Uh Clock strikes 12, all of her Magical enhancements begin to disappear. She has to run away from the prince. Not only is she running, she loses one of her glass slippers, an important detail to the story. She returns home and you might think that her life would kind of go back to normal, but actually it's worse. It's worse than it was before because she has had a taste for how beautiful the world could be. She got to be the belle of the ball. Things are bad. I mean, real bad, until the glass slipper. Every maiden in the land tries on the slipper, but only it fits on Cinderella. She wears the slipper, she marries the prince, off the charts, they live happily ever after. (laughs) Every story has a shape. And it's not just Cinderella, I mean, really. And it's not just that stories have a shape, almost every story has this shape. There's a guy, he, he owns a bookstore. It's in London. It's in a posh neighborhood, but he owns a travel bookstore. It means a very niche market. You know, only so many people are looking for travel books. And his life's okay. It's not, it's not great. He makes some money, but not as much as he, would, as, as he would like. You know, he doesn't know about Amazon yet, thank God. But he's just going around, and life's okay. And then one day, out of nowhere, a beautiful woman walks into his bookstore. She's so beautiful. She looks like Julia Roberts. <laughs> and he has this chance encounter with him. And then there's some he spills orange juice on her. That's a minor detail. Things kind of get bad for a second, but then they get better. Because they start to spend time together. They start to date. I mean, this is a travel bookstore owner and he is spending time with Julia Roberts. Everything about his life is I mean, he's got it made. Oh, but it's hard being married to a supermodel turned actress. And they break up. He can't handle it in his life. You'd think maybe it'd go back to normal, but no, it's worse than it was before. Because like Cinderella, he had a taste of how beautiful the world could be. He comes to his senses. He realizes the foolishness of his foolish ways. He makes a public declaration of affection. Marries her. Off the charts. They live happily ever after. That's Notting Hill, for those of you keeping score. Every story can fit on this. Adventures like Indiana Jones. He gets the thing, he loses the thing, he finds the thing. Barbie fits on this axis. Even The Godfather fits on here. (laughs) Stories have shapes. They begin and they end. And in between, there's good news, there's bad news, and then there's great news. Every story has a shape. I learned of this axis from a writer, a writer named Kurt Vonnegut, whom I love. And he used to talk about this axis of stories because he wanted to break the mold. He wanted to create stories that would not fit on that paradigm, and he always failed because that story is the most compelling story. But he had an idea about how to change it just a little bit, this was his advice to writers. He said, if you're creating a story you should start as close to the end as possible. Don't start at the beginning. Start as close to the end as possible. Now why? Why would you ever want to start at the end? And he said, this is a quote. He said, to heck with suspense. Readers should have such a complete understanding of what is going on, where and why, that they could finish the story for themselves should the last few pages be eaten by cockroaches. Now, I know that might sound a bit off and even weird to start as close to the end as possible. I mean, we might think it's baloney because isn't the conclusion the most important part of a tale? And yet, whenever we consume stories, again, whether they're in books or on television or in the movie theater, how we get to the conclusion is always more compelling than the conclusion itself. The poet T.S. Eliot said, what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. The end is where we start from. And so Kurt Vonnegut will roll in his grave knowing that I'm quoting him in church, but I think his idea about starting as close to the end as possible, he actually stole it from the Bible. We start as close to the end as possible. As possible, because we know how it ends, we can make sense of everything else. Thatcher, can we see the the rainbow image, please? This. This is an image of all the texts in the Bible on the bottom axis right there. The lines that curve show connections where Scripture is referenced or quoted in other parts of Scripture. That's the Bible. That's how many times the Bible refers to itself, shown in an image. We know how to make sense of the beginning and the middle because we know how the story ends. The end is where we start from. I mean, think about how the gospel spread from moment. We were talking about Paul last week. Paul, he's going around the Mediterranean, he's telling everybody the good news. Can you imagine that he goes into you know, downtown Corinth And he says, do you have time? I'd like to tell you about a young baby who was born in a small little town to some strange parents. You know, there's maybe some... Do you think that's... No, he said, hey, there was a dead guy and he came back. Don't you want to know the rest of the story? That's what's compelling. The end. And how did he get there? How did he die? How did he come back? That's why the church grew. The end is where we start from. Revelation's the end. Not just the end of the Bible. It's the last words on the words that we've got. Because the truth is already complete in Jesus. There's nothing new to say, but there's always a new way to say it. Nothing new we can say, but there's always a new way to say it. That's why the Bible ends with Revelation. Not because it gives us some new information we didn't have already, but because it revives our imaginations and our capacity to wonder. Revelation brings renewal. It's like going for a walk in the woods. It can clear our minds from all of the wildness that the world has to offer and say, hey, there's more going on than you think. Revelation is actually a gift. It's this intense book of wonder that pulls us into the strange new world full of sights and sounds that we can barely comprehend. And I promise you, we can't even really comprehend them. Read Revelation sometimes. It is filled with sky battles between angels and beasts. There are terrifying punishments, glorious salvations, kaleidoscopic visions, cosmic songs. And more often than not, we miss what John sees because we've we've become obsessed with the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell. We want to know what these things mean literally. What's the furniture in heaven going to be like and what's the temperature of hell? The revelation of John gives us something very, very different. It is indeed the apocalypse, but that word just means revelation. It's just a revealing of something. It's a revealing of God's truth that's hidden behind the barrier of heaven. So how we read these words is more important than we often let on. And we can read them literally all we want, but it just kind of results in us chasing after the signs of the times, and we're left no wiser at the end than we were at the beginning. Revelation is actually meant to be read like a poem. Like a poem. Because poets, they write not to explain something or to describe something, but to make something new. I said at the very beginning of the series when we were talking about Genesis that the business of poetry poetry gives us imaginary gardens with real toads inside of them. Which means that even here while we're reading Revelation, we're seeing all these wondrous and wild sights The real toad of God is hiding in there somewhere, ready to jump out and surprise us when we need it. And this is a text that's inspired. Inspired by the Spirit. Just like preachers are inspired by the Spirit. Just like musicians are inspired by the Spirit. And the Spirit knows, like any good poet, that metaphors, analogies, stories, images, they're not only the best tools we have at getting at the truth, they're the only tools we have. Now, last week we talked about God on the loose. God is on the loose. It happens at Pentecost. And when God is on the loose, it happens every time the heavens are opened. The Bible talks again and again about the heavens being opened. The heavens are opened at Jesus' baptism. The heavens are opened at, at, at Easter Sunday. The heavens are opened at Pentecost. The heavens are opened when Peter sees his vision. The heavens are opened when Paul is knocked down on the road to Damascus. At the beginning of Revelation, John says, and the heavens were opened. It's the same formula. The truth of God is coming into his vision and into his hearing. Every time the heavens open, we're able to see and hear what we could not see or hear before. And after all the various images in Revelation, of which there are very many, at the very end, the last thing John sees is a new beginning. You might imagine that here at the end of the Bible, we would get the conclusion, the end of the story, but actually we get a fresh and new beginning The story with creation as its first word has creation as its last word. The end is where we start from. And the end is very, very material. It's very material. The the new heaven and the new earth is the completion of what already is, not an escape from it. Heaven is not some dream that we can escape to when things are bad. It's not some ethereal spiritual world somewhere out there far away that awaits us when we go. The redeemed order is not the earth forsaken. It's the created order raised and glorified. John says, I saw a new heaven, but he says, I also see a new earth. Revelation is begging us to see that matter matters. And when Jesus is waxing lyrical about the kingdom of heaven, he always does so in earthy and earthly terms. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that you mix with flour. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding party that doesn't know when to stop. When Jesus shows up on Easter, he returns to the disciples embodied. He eats with them. He drinks with them. When the church grows during the time of the Acts of the Apostles, it's not because they were pining after the pie in the sky when they die, but because they took seriously the material world. They saw people who needed clothing. They saw people who needed food. And by giving them clothing and by giving them food, they were living according to the future and the present. Do you know what we pray for every time we say the Lord's Prayer? On earth as it is in heaven. We are trying to bring that reality into our reality. Revelation reminds us that the new heaven and the new earth isn't something that just will happen one day. It's happening right now we have access to how beautiful the world could be in things like water and bread and cup and fellowship. Earth is actually crammed with heaven. And the best news of all is we don't have to make it happen. Can you imagine if John saw this vision of the new heaven and the new earth, and then then the Lord said, and by the way, here's a faith meter. And once the world gets the faith meter full to the brim, that's when I'll show up with the new heaven and the new earth. No. God delights in giving us creatures the gift of the heavens simply because God wants to. It's a gift. It comes without our earning or deserving. It falls down from the sky right into our laps. It's the best news the world has ever offered. Every story has a shape. Every story starts. Every story ends. Every story has good news and every story has bad news. The Bible fits on there too. It starts and all is well. Garden of Eden, got everything you need. Things are going up until they don't. Until we reach for the thing we shouldn't. Until we do the thing we shouldn't. Until we avoid doing the thing we know we should do. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Until God arrives as Jesus taking on our flesh and blood sinking into the muck and mire of our life to take us from where we are to where we can be and revelation is the arrow at the top the Bible has a shape to it it's not even just the Bible our lives follow this shape too my story, your story they have a shape to them these movements up and down, they can beset and bewilder us. But the great good news of the gospel is that we know how it ends. And because we know how it ends, we are free to live right now. We catch glimpses of this new heaven and this new earth all the time. We see the sunset reflecting in the puddle around the muck and mire of our lives. We get to see how beautiful the world could be. And one day will be. See, the home of God is with us. God will dwell with us. We will be God's peoples. God will dwell with us. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be gone. The end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.